good morning, everyone. Feel free to grab a seat. Good morning, good morning. Feel free to grab a seat. I'm Jen. I'm one of the members here at the Haven. And I'll be reading the sermon text this morning, which is Luke 5, 1 through 11. If you have it in your Bibles, go ahead and turn there so you can follow along with me. Luke 5, 1 through 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. One of my favorite Haven Church members. No offense, everyone else. But... <laughs> all right. <laughs> Good morning, Haven Church family. How's everyone doing today? Did you all enjoy the snow? Yeah, I hear some weird parents. Yeah, yeah, we enjoyed it. <laughs> I hear you. I got some sledding in. It was, a, it was been a minute since I sled. It was a lot of fun. Um, so as you know, uh, turn to Luke 5, 1 through uh, 11. Quick commercial break. If you're somewhat new to the Haven Church and are interested in membership, we have a membership class via Zoom on Monday. Tomorrow, not tomorrow night. Tomorrow night is my community group leader meeting. Don't come to that. Uh, if you're interested in membership, uh, next Monday night, at 6.30 via Zoom, we have a membership class uh, where we're going to talk about the mission, vision, values of the Haven and what membership entails, how you can partner uh, with us as a member. So uh, reach out to us via email to RSVP if you're interested, and we hope to, uh, to see you then at that membership class. And so as the uh, slide shows, we are continue, continuing our sermon series, uh, Love Walked Among Us, Rediscovering the Heart of Jesus. And, and our hope with this series is, is, is us, as we take this kind of in-depth, fresh, and comprehensive look at Jesus Christ in the Gospels, as he had these, these one-on-one encounters with people, we want to rediscover our Savior's heart, where our hearts have kind of grown comfortable and, and familiar with the Christ of glory. We want to take a fresh look and take a look at our Savior again and rediscover the awe and wonder and delight of what it is to know and to love and to follow this Jesus. And if you were this last week, we looked at John 4, uh, Jesus um, walking from Judea to uh, love and minister his healing to the Samaritan woman at the well. And we saw the, 
uh, that, that, that truly love walked among us in Jesus' northbound pursuit of that, that woman who had the worst reputation in Sychar, the one that nobody else wanted to talk to. That's who Jesus was talking with and being seen with and, and loving and commissioning to go and announce that he was the Christ and the Messiah to the Samaritans. And so that was last week we saw Jesus' heart for the outcast. And today we're looking at Luke 5, uh, 1 through uh, 11. And we're going to see uh, Jesus' heart for the ordinary. Jesus' heart for uh, some fishermen. Some fishermen that changed, that he used to change the entire landscape of human history. And before we dive in, I want to uh, present this scenario to you that I know you all uh, have experienced before. And just like I opened up last week's message with a question I knew already knew the answer to, uh, I'm going to do the same thing today. And so uh, raise your hand if you have ever been minding your own business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And somebody else has got all up into your business. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, all of you, right? And more often than not, the scenario that happens, there's a lot of ways that can manifest, but it happens, you're at home, and you know, you just sat down, you just made a fire, you're about to drink coffee, maybe, and, and spend time with Jesus, and all of a sudden you hear, at the door. And maybe like 50 years ago, before cell phones and all that stuff, hearing someone knock on the door was like the joy, the dopamine rush of getting a text message, like, oh, I'm important, somebody wants to see me, right? But now when somebody knocks on the door, you're like, you know, you go into like, you freeze, it's like, who's at the door? Why is somebody at the door? What's happening, right? And before you go to the door, you always look out the window, right? You're peeling back the curtains, like, well, who, what's going on? And then, and then you go and, and, and look, and you're like, oh, it's a, it's a random dude trying to sell me something. And I, and I don't want to be rude and just slam the door in his face, but I know that that is eventually what is going to happen with this conversation. I know before I even open this door, I see that this guy's got, you know, some Cutco knives in his hands, or he's trying to sell me some windows, or who knows what else. And immediately, as you were interrupted minding your own business, and this person knocks on your door, there's a million things that are running through your, your mind. Who is this person? What do they want? And your guard is up. And you know that deep down, you're like, hey, give me your best shot, pal, but what you're selling is not worth my time and is not worth my money. And so at the course of, at the, like, as we kind of wrap up and I slowly tell you that, I, that I'm not interested, I'm going to give you the benediction to this, and I'm going to say, you know, go in peace, you know, you're dismissed. God bless you, go in peace, you're dismissed. Get out of my house and let me go, like, let me mind my own business, okay? And the reason I share that is in our text today that we just read in Luke 5, we see Peter was minding his own business, like literally tending to his own business as a fisherman. And then all of a sudden, he got like a, and the Son of God done interrupted his business and changed his life forever. And what's fascinating in this encounter, in this moment with Jesus Christ, the historical Jesus, with the historical fishermen, Peter and, and uh, James and, and John, is that the way this begins is the disciples, the future disciples, are on the outskirts of Jesus. They're not, even, they're not even part of the crowd seeking Jesus, but the way this ends is they're, they're following Jesus. They've left everything to follow Jesus. They've looked at Jesus, they looked at what, he've done, what he's done, and they looked at what he's invited them into, and they say, not only are you worth my time and money, you're worth my, my entire life being entrusted into your hands. So when you tell me to come and follow you, I'm following you and not following anything else. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today, and the three points of my talk, uh, if you're taking notes, are this three things we learn about Jesus as we are seeking to rediscover the heart of our Savior is we see the position of Jesus, the power of Jesus, and the pricelessness of Jesus. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we, we thank you, God, that as A.W. Tozer says, in Christ Jesus, we see all the beauty and the wonderment of God on display. And so as we fix our eyes on you and your word today, Lord God, would you fill our hearts with wonder and delight, and would you open eyes that are blind to see you rightly? Would you soften hardened hearts that are opposed to, uh, to you and your lordship, Lord God, and your love? Would you, Holy Spirit, do what only you can do and magnify Jesus and conform us into his image? Would you bring salvation and sanctification today by your word, by your truth, by your spirit? We come grateful before your throne that the Christ of glory, the king of the universe, has invited us to draw near, has invited sinners to draw near and to come close to experience his redeeming and healing love and salvation. And we thank you for your presence here, Jesus, that you're here with us. By your spirit, you're walking among us now. And we just commit this time to you. We commit our hearts to you. And we say, Lord, have your way with our hearts and with your word. And all God's people said, amen. All right, well, the first thing we see in our text is the position of Jesus. You might be asking, Nick, what in the world do you mean by that? You had some weird points in your sermons before, but this is a weird one. What do you mean? A position is defined, according to Google, as this. A place where someone or something is located or has been put. That's what a position is. A place where someone or something is located or has been put. And in our text today, in the first couple verses, what we see is we see kind of uh, two crowds, if you will. We see a, a crowd that's really interested in Jesus and a crowd of fishermen that's completely disinterested in Jesus. At this point, Jesus is beginning, his, the, the biblical scholars would say, his great Galilean ministry. We're on the kind of the western bank of the Sea of Galilee. He begins his earthly ministry, both declaring that the kingdom of God has come and demonstrating it in power through healing and deliverance and miracles. And uh, this lasted for about a year and a half, but, but this is just the beginning. But what we see in this region is that the fame of Jesus has begun to spread. And cr there's a crowd. The scene is Jesus is, is walking along the shore. Love walked among us. He's walking on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And the crowd is pressing in on him. So to the extent that it's almost as if they're pressing in on him to hear him teach the word of God. And he's about to fall into the water. Right? That's how much they want to hear. That's how much they're, they're interested. Who, who teaches like this man? The authority, the wisdom that's dripping from his, his lips. And on the other part of the sea, other part of the shore, we see some disinterested fishermen minding their own business. They have fished all night, their boats are docked, and they're cleaning their nets. They're not part of the crowd. They're not seeking out Jesus. You know, the apostle Peter on this rock, I will build my church, never sought out Jesus. Jesus first sought him out. Jesus first entered into his life, and then Jesus invited him into his life. This is what we know about our Savior. He is the, the, the great invader of our lives and the great inviter uh, into his life to humanity. He's invaded Peter's life. He's invading their life. He's getting in their business. So all that to say, positionally, where Jesus is at in Peter's life in this moment is on the fringe, on the outskirts, at best, at best, the, uh, Peter and, and his brother and James and John have heard rumors of Jesus. Maybe they've talked to Jesus, but they're probably in, in, in like dating relationship. It's like, like we're Facebook stalking. 
We're still, the news, this news is still out on this guy. We're still watching from a distance, and we're not going to be foolishly uh, naive to just uh, be like the rest of this crowd, right? We got work to do. We got business to do. We got mouths to feed, so on and so forth. And what's fascinating in our text is all of a sudden, in a couple verses, we see Jesus going from the outskirts of Peter's life to all of a sudden sitting in his boat, sitting in his boat. This is what verses 2 through 3 say. And he saw two boats by the lake. Jesus saw two boats by the lake. Remember, he's getting pushed into the water by the crowd as they're wanting to hear him preach the word of God. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. And Jesus, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land and sat down and taught the people from the boat. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing, and Peter had no idea what was about to happen in his life, right? And at first glance, this can kind of be, seem like a, a nice little coincidence, a little quinky dink Oh, this is so nice. There's some boats available, and there's a situation here. And then the Son of God finds the rock on which he's going to build the church's boat and just accidentally jumps into it, right? That's not what happens. This isn't an accident. This is a divine appointment, a divine setup for Peter. And so practically, the purpose of Jesus getting in that boat was to have a floating pulpit. He, you know, a few yards off the water, crowd you gather so you're not all up in my face so you can hear me. Uh, the, 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 my sound's going to carry over the water. And it's genius of, of Jesus who's, who's fishing for Peter, right? He's pursuing Peter. This is the beauty of our Savior. Before he ever asked Peter and, and the disciples to be catchers of men, to be fishers of men, he first caught them and fished for them. So this is Jesus in the boat, and now Peter is there watching the Son of God, the Messiah, this rabbi, in his boat, and he has to listen until Jesus is done, right? He has to listen. Like, you all hear, you know, you could leave at any time. It might be rude, but like, if I'm in your car, standing on your car, you can't leave, right? Until I'm done with my sermon. You have to sit there and listen to every word I say, whether you like it or not, and that's where Peter finds himself. And so this idea of of, Peter, uh, of Jesus sitting in Peter's boat was gnawing at me as I was preparing for this message. And I, and I know that we have the practical reasons in the text, but I'm like, Jesus, what were you doing? You could have chose the other boat, but it says that you intentionally chose Simon's boat. You climbed in Simon's boat. And I imagine if you're a, a fisherman, your boat was your life, right? Like, that was that sacred space. In a way, for Peter, that was the throne where he reigned and ruled over his kingdom in that boat. From a young age, he saw his father and his grandfather be fishermen, and he grew up being a, wanting to be a fisherman. When I asked my little boy what, what he wants to do, he doesn't say he wants to be a, a preacher, but what he does say is, I want to be a policeman, and I want to be a fire truck, is what my little boy says. And Peter, growing up, for sure, probably looked at his dad when he asked the same question, I want to be a fishing boat. And he's trying to say fishermen. Like, this was, like, that boat symbolized Peter's life. That was his sacred space, the place where his identity and his, his livelihood were, were inextricably woven and, and, and locked together. And my dad growing up had a garage separate from our house. And it was, in a way, his, his temple, right? And he had all these sacred objects in this temple called DeWalt Tools. And they were all over uh, the place. And if you ever entered into his space, it was only because you were invited into his space. Like, that was his sacred space. And in the middle of, uh, of that temple was the Holy of Holies. And that was this Corvette, the 64 Stingray 
sky blue, white leather seat convertible Corvette that he had covered. And this thing was so sacred that if you touched it, you would risk your life even touching this thing, right? You would die. Like, the glory was so powerful, you would die. The only way you ever got set down in that thing is if you were invited. That was essentially his throne, his domain, his territory. Nobody dare invited themselves into that Stingray Corvette. And what do we see the Christ of glory do with Peter as he sits down in his boat and gives a sermon? And I couldn't help but think of what, you know, the million reasons we could guess of what Jesus is doing here outside the practical reasons, and we don't want to be guilty of reading too much into the text. But what if, using our imaginations, what if what is happening here is Jesus is sitting in Peter's boat? What if this is Jesus, the conquering king, coming and sitting on another man's throne and declaring, this all belongs to me now? What if it's Jesus taking his rightful place at the center and the apex of Peter's life? And Jesus knows it at the time. Jesus is sitting there teaching, and he knows that in about, depending on the length of his sermon and the length of this catch, in about 30 to 45 minutes, Peter's walking away from this boat. He's walking away. His entire livelihood, his, his, his past, his present, his future is round up in this boat, and Jesus is completely going to reorient the trajectory of his life. This is Jesus, the conquering king, coming and sitting on another king's throne and declaring this throne and everything it represents belongs to me. I'm no longer going to be on the outskirts of Peter's life. I'm going to be on the throne of his life. This is what Colossians 1, 15 through 18 says about Jesus Christ. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. The God of love has made himself known, took on flesh, and dwelt among us. That Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And before we gloss over that, that, sh- that should astound us and cause us to marvel. And what we learn there is that our life has meaning, our life has purpose, that we are not an accident, that there's someone There's a person behind everything we see, and this person created everything we see for his glory to be under his reign and rule. And when all those things enter under his reign or rule, they find the peace, they find the life that they have been looking for, that they were created for. All things were created through Jesus, and all things were created for Jesus. Whether you know it or not, you were created to know and to love and to worship King Jesus. And he is, what's his position? He is before all things. And in Jesus as creator, he also is sustainer of the universe and all things hold together in him. And he is head of the church, the body. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Watch this. That in everything, Jesus might be preeminent. That in everything, he might be preeminent. This is the position Jesus wants in our life, in all things, in every area of our lives. He's first. He's at the center. And when that moment happens, when that surrender to to his lordship happens in our life, we finally find what we're looking for. We finally find a king who's worth following, 
a king who is seated in glory and in majesty and has the power to, to, to stretch out the galaxies like a, a blanket with the word of his mouth, and yet at the same time a king who condescends and comes and invades our life. The Lord is my shepherd. Love walked among us. This king doesn't keep his distance but invades our life. And I think one of the things I want to highlight before we move on to our next point is often in our Christian life, one of the reasons we lose our awe and our wonder is life is, it seems ordinary, right? Uh, you got to pay the bills, you go to work, got to change diapers, got to go buy groceries, got to go sledding. It just seems, you know, like ordinary, right? And let me say that when we, when we understand who we're gathering to celebrate today, who we're singing to today, who we're praying to today, who we're going to be spending forever with today, the ordinary becomes extraordinary. I don't know if you've ever uh, uh, known someone who when they walked into a room, it didn't matter what situation they walked into, the entire room changed. The entire atmosphere changed, right? I met a a well-known leader in in the Christian church ahead of uh, a network we're a part of and uh, was in the elevator with this guy. And uh, in a second, that boring elevator ride changed. There's something about this individual. Started asking me questions, saw my name tag, started asking me questions, changed the entire course of a simple, boring elevator thing where everyone's there. He's like, oh man, there's the boss, there's the big cheese, okay, okay, whatever. And then he just lights it all up. And that's what Jesus does in his grace to us, is the Christ of glory comes and says, take a look at me, get your eyes off of your ordinary circumstances, Come and behold me, my beauty, my glory, my majesty. Do you, do you remember, do you know who's for you, who's died for you, who loves you, who's with you, who's leading you, and who's guiding you? And so as we want to rediscover the heart of Jesus, my hope and my prayer is with this sermon is that we would uh, return to this, this, this true and right awe and reverence for our king, that yes, he is our shepherd who's come for us, and yes, he's the king of the universe, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise, the Christ of glory. David Platt says this about Jesus's lordship. Surely none of us can decide to make him lord. Jesus is lord regardless of what you or I decide. The Bible is clear that one day every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is lord. The question this is what I'm getting at. The question is not whether we will make Jesus Lord. The real question is whether you or I will submit to his lordship. And this is the essence of conversion. It's a great quote by a theologian who says, there is not a single square inch of the universe where Jesus Christ does not look down upon and say, mine, mine. And conversion happens, salvation happens when we shift from this and say, God, you're not getting an ounce of my life. And we say, Jesus, my life is entirely yours. Here it is. I surrender. I'm yours. I came from you. It's the reason I'm breathing air is you spoke me into existence and you spoke me into existence so that I could have a, a relationship of love and reverent worship to you forever. So I'm shifting from this and I'm saying, I agree with you that I'm, I belong to you. I'm yours forever. And the next thing we see in our text not just the position of Jesus, him wanting to invade Peter's life and, and, and be seated at the very center of his life, but we also see the power of Jesus on 
display. What's interesting is after Jesus finishes his sermon from the boat, he does something curious. He doesn't uh, get off the boat and then come talk to Peter and say, hey man, thanks for the rental. Uh, hey, why don't you come and follow me and I'll tell you more about the kingdom of God. What, what Jesus does after he's finished talking, he's still fishing for Peter's heart. Peter hasn't fully surrendered. Peter hasn't fully committed to following Jesus. And so uh, uh, Jesus essentially looks at Peter and his uh, fellow fishermen and he says, go fish. Go fish. I know you guys fished all night. I know you guys are just, you know, fishing, uh, uh, cleaning up your, your fishing nets here, but go fish and see what happens. Go fish and see what happens. This is the way Jesus says it in verses 5, 4 through 5. And when he had finished speaking, Jesus said to Simon Peter, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered him, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, exclamation point kind of exasperated about that. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And so what we see here is the request of Jesus is, is pretty absurd. And, and one of the, the first reasons why is the audacity of it, right? Jesus is a carpenter turned rabbi teacher at this moment, right? The verdict's still out on him being the son of God, the Christ, uh, the, the Messiah come to liberate God's people from their oppressors and establish his kingly reign and rule over uh, all things. The verdict's still out. And so the audacity of a carpenter to look at a fisherman and say, hey, go fish, right? Saying, okay, hey, Jesus, this is maybe what Peter's thinking. Peter, your, your rabbi thinks this is all great, you know? Um, certainly you're not interested in some blue-collar stinky, rough-around-the-edges fishermen being part of that whole crowd, not really into that whole synagogue, you know, like, like you know, thing, that movement yet, you know. Um, why don't you, Jesus, stay in your lane, and I'll stay in my lane. You stay at a safe distance, and, and that's how this thing will work, okay? And uh, so that's probably what Peter is wrestling with, is the audacity of this, this rabbi to tell him when to fish and how to fish. And then secondly, there's the absurdity of it, because um, it's, it's probably in the middle of the day, which is a terrible time uh, to fish. You don't go fishing in the middle of the day. And oh, by the way, they toiled all night and they caught nothing. And that's the, the third hesitation we see here with Peter and why that exclamation point is in our text is the hassle of it. They fished all night, they caught nothing, and they had just cleaned their nets. They're literally about to punch out, go get lunch, and Jesus is like, go back at it. And in front of this crowd, you know, go, and, and Peter probably has no faith and is willing to just go look like a fool and prove Jesus wrong. Be like, hey, we, we tried, we set out our nets, and nothing happened. And what happens next, as they go uh, at the command of Jesus and go back into the waters, these fishermen see something they have never seen before growing up on the Sea of Galilee. And verses 6 through 7 says this, and when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. The picture we see here is fantastic, right? I imagine Jesus just grinning, like arms behind his back and just waiting for the moment to come and just grinning, right? And they go and uh, they catch so many fish that their nets are beginning to tear and the boats are beginning 
to sink. These fishermen have never seen others or heard, or heard tales of anyone catching something like this on the Sea of Galilee. And what they are encountering right now is the supernatural power of this man standing before them named Jesus. That either somehow he had supernatural knowledge that this massive school of fish was there, or he himself by the Spirit both had the knowledge but also the power to say all those fish are going to gather right there. But either way, Peter was confronted with a man who was tapped in, who was dialed into the supernatural realm that manifested and impacted the physical realm. And his mind was blown. His mind was blown away. And as I was preparing for this message, I couldn't help but think, this is amazing. Jesus is putting his power on display. But why was this necessary for Peter? Why was this necessary to have happen uh, in order to get Peter to, to follow Jesus. And I had this thought cross my mind as I was preparing, just wrestling with this, where Jesus could have just invited him to follow him from the fishing boat like he did with Levi. Sees Levi at the, the task collector booth, says, come and follow me. He could have said that Peter, but instead we see this miracle. Well, what we see here, what we know to be true, is if you really want to get someone's attention, if you really want to get someone's attention who maybe is, is disinterested to you or doesn't have a kind of a healthy respect for you, you put your power on display. And at this point in the text, Peter isn't on his knees worshiping Jesus. He's actually kind of arguing with Jesus. He's saying, Master, uh, this doesn't make any sense. Okay, whatever. I'll go do it. You know, so on and so forth. That was his attitude towards Jesus at the time. And my wife, Jen, who was just up here reading the sermon text today, uh, her first year teaching was in Richmond, in the inner city uh, public school system of Richmond. She was teaching middle schoolers. And if you know Jen, she's Sweet, sweet Jen, right, is a nice way to know Jen. Like, wouldn't her to fly, you know, whatever. And uh, let's just say that the first year of teaching in that uh, environment was really hard for her. Uh, she uh, was not necessarily well-respected by uh, the students and was like, yeah, sure, whatever you say, give me a break, blah, blah, blah. I'll go do what I want. And Jen, over the course of this, was like, how do I, how do I get these students to kind of respect my authority as, as a teacher in their life? And uh, if, you, if you don't know my wife, well, you, uh, one of the things that when you get to know her that you know about her is like, she's crazy athletic, like freakishly athletic. So grew up playing soccer and basketball, um, played club soccer at Virginia Tech, got intramural athlete of the year, Virginia Tech. And when her husband goes and plays her in basketball, he tries his best and still loses. Um, like she's really, really good. And so she's like, you know what I'm going to do? After school, all of these boys in my class will go to the basketball court. I play basketball. And so there came a day where Jen's like, all right, I'm bringing my Jordans to the, to the game, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go show them what's up. And I was talking to Jen last night, and I was like, okay, about this. I was like, hey, can I share this? And she goes, I, I told her, I was like, hey, so what was that like? Like, you know, was it pretty competitive? Like, did they, were they able to cross you up or whatever? And her words, not mine. I have it in quote. She said, I annihilated them. That's <laughs> what she said. Annihilated them. And I just picture Jen with like some sixth grader just, boom, you know, just dunking on them. And I was like, that's awesome. I was definitely going to use that in the sermon. And um, what happened the next day, because I was after school, the next day when she walked the halls, the whole school, when she walked the halls, this was the line uh, that Jen told me that she heard, because her, her, her maiden name was Slater. Miss Slater can ball. Miss Slater can ball, y'all. Miss Slater can ball. You got to come see her ball. You know, it's like she got all of a sudden, what, what, did, what did my wife do? She put her power 
on display, and some of these boys would pride themselves on their, their basketball skills. She said, all right, I've been holding back because, because you have, you've been kind of disinterested and, and not listening. Let me, let me show you what's up. Let me humble you. Let me put you in your, your place. And that's what happened with Jesus here in his grace and his love to Peter. Jesus did this because it was necessary to humble Peter and beat Peter kind of at his own game. And so in his grace to Peter, he put his full power on display. And for lack of a better term, in love, he annihilated Peter. Is exactly what we see, is that these expert fishermen were outfished by the rabbi, by the teacher. And they were the only ones who truly knew how miraculous this catch was. That this was supernatural. This was no natural accident, but this was a supernatural act of God. And that these fishermen were in the presence of someone, of power and of authority. And this is what happens. This is immediately what happens. It was we see Peter's response. He had immediately become aware when Jesus Christ manifested his power, manifested his glory to Peter. Peter had immediately become aware of his own inadequacy and his own sense of unworthiness. And Peter says this. And when Peter saw the miracle, Jesus putting his power on display... He fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Do you see the tone? The change in his posture towards this Jesus. And what's fascinating here is, you know, um, Peter in the Gospels has a tendency to be pretty excitable as you read the rest of the Gospels, right? And I resonate with that. I can be pretty excitable sometimes if I see Jesus do something awesome. What we don't see Peter do is run up to Jesus and be like, high five, Jesus, that was awesome. Where do I sign up to follow you? That was amazing. Let me sign up. No, instead we see him on his face saying, get away from me. Who are you? Depart from me. You got the wrong guy. What are you doing being all up in my business? Why are you doing this to me? Why are you pursuing me? Why are you all up in my space? You got the wrong guy. Do you know who you're talking to? I'm a sinner. I have no business being with you. I have no business following you. Depart from me. I don't want you in my life. This thing can't work out. And the logic that Peter is using is sound. Jesus is holy. Peter is a sinner. Jesus, therefore, has to get away from Peter lest Peter dies. And what's fascinating about Jesus' response to Peter is that Peter, Jesus doesn't disagree with Peter. He doesn't say, oh, no, no man, no worries. You're, 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 not, you're not a sinner or you're not in the presence of, of the Lord. Can you just confess my lordship, the Lord of lords, the king of the universe? It's not that. You're not, everything's all right. You don't need it to change anything. What he says in verse 10 is this. He said, And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And what's fascinating with this is that line, do not be afraid, is that when Jesus manifests manifests his glory to Peter, Peter has a, a fear as he becomes aware of who he's in the presence, who he's in the presence of. And the refrain of Jesus is, yes, I'm, I'm Lord. Yes, I'm holy. Yes, I'm perfectly righteous. But I'm not here to condemn. I'm not here to kill you. 
because of your sin. I'm here to save, and I'm here to rescue you from your sin. The impression I get from this, if you've ever seen, not that I I have a hobby of watching this, okay, but somewhere along uh, watching TV or YouTube, you'll see these like classic animal rescue stories, right? Where like a, a horse will get stuck in mud, and unless someone comes and rescues the horse out of the muck and the mire, it's it's going to die. And you have these people risking their own lives, maybe on the ice or wherever this animal is, and these rescuers come, but the animal is filled with fear and begins to attack the very people that are coming to save the animal, thinking that, hey, I haven't seen this person before. They got kind of all sorts of powerful contraptions, and, and they're fighting. They're, 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 they're essentially saying, depart from me. You're here to, to kill me. And the person is saying, the whole reason I've drawn near is, yes, you're trapped, but I've come to rescue you. You don't need to be fearful. You need to be rejoicing that your Savior, your rescuer, has come. And how often is this our view of God when we're caught in our sin, Right? That moment came for Peter where he fully in the presence of the Holy Son of God had a full awareness of his unworthiness before a holy and just God. And when we think God is coming in for the kill, he's coming in to rescue and save. John 3, 16 through 17 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son Jesus into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And this is exactly what we see in our text. The cry of Peter, depart from me, Jesus. The cry from the sinner to the Savior to depart from me is met with the invitation of Jesus to draw near to me. To follow me, and I will make you a fisher of men. I'll redefine your entire existence. I'll invite you into my will. I'll invite you into my kingdom. I'll invite you into something you would have never dare thought or imagined was possible for your life. I'll call you out of a out of a light of life of insignificance into a life of eternal significance. And this is where we see the heart of Jesus on display, this mighty, powerful, pure, righteous king manifesting his presence to Peter. And instead of Peter evaporating like dust, he puts an arm around his shoulder and says, you're coming home with me. I'm bringing you home. I'm cleaning you up. You come to me. And that's the heart of Jesus to the sinner is yes, God is holy. And yes, we have turned from him and our sinners. What's the solution? Is Jesus Christ the king came and walked among us and took our sin to the cross so that we don't die, but he died in our place so that we could live spotless and pure forever with him in his presence. And following this exchange with Peter, where he expect condemnation and and instead he got an invitation to follow Jesus, Peter makes the most logically sound decision of his life. And this is where we see the pricelessness of Jesus. And I'll wrap up with this. My last point, the pricelessness of Jesus. In verse verse 11, we see the response of Peter and the rest of the fishermen with him. And And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. They left everything and followed him. 
at face value, we can look at Peter and James and John and say that was one of the dumbest decisions of their life. They, they're walking away from the family business. They're leaving their boats and nets on the, the shore. Um, they have no idea what's ahead of them. This is foolish. This is not wise. This was the means of their livelihood, their identity, their provision. And what we know to be true is this, is, is if we were to ask the question, how do you determine the value of something, right? Like if I were to hold this wedding ring up and you were to take a guess of, of how much this costs, well, the cost is assessed by essentially what someone is willing to give to get this. Like what are you willing to give in order to get this? And when Jesus Christ manifested his glory to these fishermen, they said, I will give my very life in order to get that man in my life. He said it, and, and, and history shows in Acts 4, we see about, you see Peter and John, these fishermen before the council in Acts 4, and they're, being, they're about to be arrested and persecuted down the road. And uh, with the council, they look at these men and the response they gave and said, these were common, uneducated fishermen, but they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They had been with Jesus. So what Peter knew in that moment and what the rest of his disciples knew with the little bit of knowledge they knew of Jesus is that following this man was worth any cost to acquire having him in our lives. And the question I want to leave us with before we take communion is do we see Jesus as precious as he truly is in our lives? Uh, I was reading uh, the Upper Room Discourse in John 16 today, uh, earlier this week, and what was astounding was Jesus says, and we know the verse, he says, in the world you will have tribulation. The world is, is hard. The world's going to be full of suffering and affliction. But in the same breath, in the same sentence, Jesus says, and in me you have peace. And in me you have peace. And so let's quiet our hearts before we take communion. And let's remind our souls of the precious gift that Jesus Christ is to us that there is no threat of punishment coming for our sins, that punishment has fallen on Jesus Christ, that our future is bright, our future is full of glory, that in our present circumstances, our God has promised to be for us, and evidence of how radically for us he is, is he who has given us his son, Jesus Christ, how much more will he not give us all things? And so my hope today would just be a simple call to repentance, a simple call to respond the way Peter responded to Jesus, of humble reverence and awe, and asking Jesus to come and reveal in your life where um, you have diminished his value and you've begun to value other things in your life. And so I'll call up the band. You, begin, you can begin to, to pray and fellowship with Jesus by the Spirit as I invite us to take communion. And the refrain that came to mind as I was praying about what to say with communion was Psalm 23, talking about the goodness of God. And this psalm, the psalmist starts out and he says this, he says, The Lord, the King of kings, the creator of the universe, the one reigning and ruling over all things, that Lord is my shepherd. 
The king is my shepherd. And as we take communion, we see the height and the length and the depths that our Lord and our shepherd was willing to go to rescue us from our sin. On the night that Jesus was gonna be betrayed by his disciples, he shared one last Passover meal with them and he took bread and he, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is gonna be broken for you. And this, is, this wine was gonna represent my blood, which is gonna be shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And you can know the value that someone places on an object by the cost that they're willing to go, the lengths they're willing to go to acquire that. And what we're celebrating today is that our God is not a deistic God. He's not a distant God. He's not an aloof God. He's not a, a God who's, who, uh, who, who's constantly disgusted with us. But this God is so radically in love and for humanity that this God took on flesh and love came running for us. The Lord became our shepherd and chased after the lost sheep to the extent to bring us home to the extent that he would go to the cross and take our punishment so that we could go home and this meal commemorates the sacrificial love of our savior the heights and the lengths and the depths of his love for us that jesus christ the king of the universe laid down everything to gain you and the simple invitation of jesus would you now be willing to leave everything to follow me so let's pray and then we'll celebrate the Lord together. Heavenly Father, we quiet our souls. We don't rush this moment. Heavenly Father, we're not here to uh, just go through the motions to, to, to do some religious exercise. We're here to say yes to your invitation. We're here to fix our eyes afresh on you to get the focus off of ourselves and, and look to you where you're seated, what you've done. And so right now, Jesus, I just pray by your spirit, you would come and minister your healing to any broken and weary hearts today, God. Pray you would speak words of truth and life to those present, God. I pray that Jesus, that you'd begin to knock on doors this morning where you say, behold, in, in Revelation 3, you say, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I want to come in and eat with them and fellowship with them. And I pray, Lord, that as people hear you knock today on their hearts and, 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 and interrupt their business, God, interrupt their lives, that they would say yes and they would welcome you in for the first time, so would you, by your spirit, do that in these next few moments, Lord God? Open the eyes of our heart, God, so we can see you rightly, Lord God. Open the eyes of our hearts, Lord God. So with communion, we remember the, the blood, we remember the body, we remember the sacrifice, Lord God. We fix our eyes on you, and we have tangible evidence that this is your heart posture, God, towards us in Christ Jesus paying the highest price that could be paid for our salvation, for our rescue, that you didn't come to condemn, you came to rescue. And we celebrate that today, that the work is finished and we get to feast with you and fellowship with you. And I pray, Lord, that we would return today, all of us, 
with hearts of adoration and hearts, of hearts full of affection for all that you are and all that you've done for us in Christ Jesus. We pray this in your name.